Uh, every time we come to this, this place, after we've been, you can see at the top of your study sheet now, this is, what, what is it, 133rd message? Is, is that right? What is it? 120th message in the book of Revelation. I wish I had the time to try to catch you up. Obviously, we don't have that kind of time this morning. But now, now listen very carefully. Those of you that may be here for the first time, this will help you if we can just maybe devi- define some terms as we get started. Okay, now, now listen real carefully to this. In the book of Revelation, what we find in chapters 2 and 3 is the Lord Jesus Christ writes seven letters to seven churches that really existed in Asia Minor around 90 A.D. or so when John received this revelation. Okay, so the Lord is writing these letters. They, they approached situations that were really taking place in those churches. There is that historical application. However, If that's all you get out of it, you're going to lose your way in the book of Revelation because when you take those seven letters and place them into the whole of the book of the Revelation, what you find is this, that what God has done is he has taken the church age and he has divided it into seven periods that are represented in those seven letters. It's an amazing thing. We've, We've spent a lot of time going through that. But what you find in those letters is that what Jesus is actually doing is he is actually giving us an outline that we can use to interpret the events of history where the book of Acts leaves off and takes us all the way up to the rapture, which, coincidentally enough, as soon as the seventh and final letter is written in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 1, what happens is heaven opens, there's a voice, there's a trumpet. It's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 describes as the rapture. It takes place immediately after the seventh and final letter. Now, the thing that's important for you to get out of all of that, okay, is that we are now living, according to what the Word of God says, in that seventh and final period. That period is the letter that is written to the Laodiceans, okay? That was a town that was real close to Colossae. However, what you find is that the word Laodicea means, check this out, the rights of the people. And if there is a a one-word capsulization of the period of time that we're presently living in, as far as the church is concerned, you know what? It would be Laodicea, the rights of the people. We go to a church not because of what the church is proclaiming. We go to a church because of what it does for me, what it does for my family. You know what? That's, That's Laodicea. And if you look and see what Jesus said about this period of time and the people who profess to know him, in this period of time, what he says is, oh my goodness, I want you to be hot, but you're not. And yet you're not cold. You're balanced. You're lukewarm. And he says, you know what, I'd rather you just go one way or the other. And he says, and here you are parading yourselves thinking that you're doing so good and that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And he says, and you don't really realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. Okay, so that's Laodicea. Now, in great contrast to who we are, in Revelation chapter 14, what God is detailing for us is a group of people that is going to arrive on this planet in the very near future. In fact, we talked last week, they're probably already alive somewhere on this planet. But as soon as the church is removed, God is going to carry out his mission. And you can bank on this. God's always going to have a people. And as soon as we're out of here, 
what God is going to do is he is going to appear to a group of people that are referred to as the 144,000. According to Revelation chapter 7, they are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the time you get to chapter 14, where he is detailing this group of people, what you find out is that there is never in the history of mankind, there's never been a group of people quite like this 144,000. And yet what we're finding is that the things that will be true of this group in just a little while are things that are commanded to be true of us as believers in Jesus Christ, as his servants right now. And we've looked already, you can see on your study sheet, we've looked at the fact that there's visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and his Father. That's evident through their seal. That's evident through their submission. We've made a lot of application so that we can see that there is going to be in every person who genuinely knows Jesus Christ in this dispensation, there is going to be visible evidence that you are identified with him. And the fact of the matter is, if there is no visible evidence, if a, if a person could not look at your life and see, see that you have been sealed by the Spirit of God, which according to 2 Timothy chapter 2 says is going to be a seal that is marked by you departing from iniquity, if there's no visible evidence, according to what the New Testament says, then you ain't really identified with the Lamb and his Father. There's going to be visible evidence in everybody that knows him. Not only that, we see in the 144,000, there's audible evidence. It, it's, it's, you, you can listen to this group of people, and through their song and through their speech, you can understand that they do have a connection with the Lamb and His Father. We've made, again, the application that in this dispensation, those of us that are His servants, you know what? There is going to be a song in our heart. There is going to be a speech that is consistent with who a believer in Jesus Christ is. And if there's no audible evidence in our life, in fact, the matter is, according to the New Testament, what it would teach is that we really don't have a connection with the Lamb and His Father. But for the last, whatever it's been now, six or seven weeks, we've been on Roman numeral three on your outline. The fact that there is moral evidence of the 144,000's relation to the Lamb and His Father, and you should be in Revelation 14 by now. Look at verse four. It says this, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And now listen, because sexual sin in this Laodicean church period, because it is running so rampant, because there is such a problem with that, what we have done over the last several weeks, before we actually cruised into the outline here from Revelation chapter 14, we've just kind of put the brakes on for a little while, to let God just take us on a little journey through every place in the New Testament where he talks about this thing of our morality, of our, our sexual appetites. And what we've been trying to do is let God just get our attention. And the reason that we've taken all this time before we actually got into the outline last week is the, the fact that there are many, listen, there are many, many, many people in this Laodicean church period who profess that they have a relationship with the Lamb and with His Father who are involved in sexual sin and yet they're banking on the fact that they're going to go to heaven when they croak and listen it is so scary because listen this is something that is just I mean it is everywhere in Laodicea and, and what we have seen over the last six or seven weeks through every place that we've been 
is for somebody to be living in sexual sin would give evidence of the fact that there is no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in a nutshell, everything that we've been seeing is basically this. There's one thing that God knew for absolute sure was going to set his people apart from the lost world. And you know what that was? That one thing? That one thing was going to be what was going to take place with their sexual appetites. God was banking on the fact that salvation, when it came to us, would do something that there would be, to use the biblical word, y'all, that there'd be a transformation inside of us. And you know what? In God's mind, there was no doubt about it. If there's one area that they're going to be different, it's going to be this area. And we've seen that scripture after scripture after scripture. And yet, what's wild, what's unbelievably scary in Laodicea, is that if there is one area where we are very much like the world, it is this area of our morality, of our sexual appetites. And maybe the reason that we allow ourselves to be blinded in this area is the fact that what a lot of believers in Laodicea or professed believers in Laodicea have done is because, oh, we know that, you know, sexual sin, adultery, fornication, we know that that is such, I mean, we knew as lost people that one was wrong. And because we got saved and we, you know, we've got this, you know, such a, oh, this major distaste toward that thing, what we do when we get saved that becomes a very blinding thing to us is what we do is we suppress all of these desires, and now that we're saved, we ain't going to commit that one. But, oh, buddy, if you could see what was going on in our hearts, man, would we like to. And we've said this over and over and over throughout this study, that what salvation was, yo, was not just God giving to all of us a massive dose of self-discipline. So now, thank you, Lord, now... I don't have to do all of the things that I really want to do. You got it? This salvation thing isn't just suppressing my desires. Salvation is a transformation of my desires. That's what this thing is all about. And I'm telling you, God's absolutely clueless to a group of people who profess to be believers and yet have not had that kind of transformation take place in their life. So we've been looking at this and just trying to let God get our attention on this. And listen, you know what? I mean, if that's all that salvation was, then you know what what salvation did? It made us just like the Pharisees. Because according to Matthew chapter 23, what what, what he talks to that group of people about is he says, listen, here's what you guys are, are, are like. He says, you're like whited sepulchers, which was a grave. that They would put the stone in front of it and they'd wash that pup white and on the outside, man, it looked smooth. And he said to the religious leaders of his day, you know what, you guys are just like that. On the outside, you you have this appearance of being so beautiful. But on, on the inside, he says, you're full of dead men's bones, listen, and all uncleanness. You know what? That's a real good definition of Laodicea right there, y'all. We have worked so hard to make sure we don't do all that nasty, dirty stuff in that sexual area while the inside of us is still full of all uncleanness. 
And, and again, what, we, what we've tried to do is just show over the last several weeks. And what we're going to do today, believe it or not, y'all, we're actually going to finish this. We're going to finish the Laodicea and Lessons from the Lambs, 144,000. And we're actually going to be in verse 6 next week. And I know it's an amazing thing, but it's going to happen. <laughs> but, but listen, today, let, let's do this. Let's just reach back and let's just grab all of this. Because this has been, listen, this has been a key time for this church. I believe God's gotten, gotten our attention on this, this whole area and all of what's going on on the inside of us. And I, I really do believe from the things that you guys have shared. I believe that God's doing a purifying work in our midst. And today this is the last shot for God to, to be able to do that. Let, let's talk just in, in quick review here about some of the incongruencies that there are for somebody who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ and yet continue in sexual sin, whether that sin be in thought or in deed, we saw, first of all, that that implies that Satan's power is more powerful than God. Because what it says in Acts 26 and verse 18 is that what salvation does for us is that it opens our eyes, listen, it turns us from darkness to light, and listen to what it says, and it turns us from Satan's power unto God. And when we as believers in Jesus Christ continue to live in that arena, what we're really saying is that God's power really wasn't enough to turn us from that which used to be characteristic of our life. And God comes along in Ephesians chapter 3. Can't wait for Frank to get there in the next several years or so. But in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, you know what he says? You know what he says about those of us who comprise the body of Christ? He said that what God did is He took us, this group of people, and everybody that professes to know Christ, He took us and He used us and puts us on display to show the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the world, listen, but to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. Listen, God so knew that salvation was going to be such a transformation that what He did is He says, watch this. To the lost world and to every demon that is floating through the air, he says, y'all watch this. You want to see my wisdom? You want to see it? Bam! Salvation comes to that group of people. And here we are, that group of people that God's using to put on display for his manifold wisdom. And we're taking off our clothes and engaging in relationships unsaved Gentiles do? Oh my, I'm sure that when Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says the accuser of our brethren stands before God day and night, listen, if a believer in Jesus Christ can do that, can you just hear it at the throne? Hey, oh holy mighty one with all your great power, you checking out what Mark's thinking about down there? Did you see what he's doing? Just telling you, y'all, this does not compute, Will Robinson. What this implies is that Satan's power is more powerful than God. It, secondly, it ineffectualizes the prayer of Jesus on our behalf. If you look at John chapter 17, verse 20, what you find is he prayed for his disciples, and not just the ones that he had at that moment, but the ones that were going to believe because of their testimony, and that's all of us. And you know what happened in John chapter 17? Jesus prayed for us. You know what he prayed, y'all? Not that we'd be taken out of the world, 
but that the world would be taken out of us. And when we live according to the world standard, according to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, what we're really saying is that God couldn't or God wouldn't answer the prayer of Jesus on our behalf. And again, tilt. I mean, come on, how does that happen? A, a third thing, it identifies us. When we continue in sexual sin, it identifies us with the most despicable people in the entire Word of God. You know what it does? It identifies us, I mentioned just a minute ago, with unsaved Gentiles. It identifies us with false prophets, and it identifies us with reprobates. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what he says is, listen, the people who don't know how to possess their vessel, those are the unsaved Gentiles, not born-again believers. He, he says the people who have eyes full of adultery and can't cease from sin, those are not believers in Jesus Christ. Those are false prophets. He says those who are filled with unrighteousness and fornication, those aren't believers in Jesus Christ. Those are reprobates. And I'm telling you, you begin to see who it is that lives in that kind of sin, and there is no way in the world that your mind can even compute that a believer in Jesus Christ would go there. And yet, this is the clincher of it. What it does for us to be involved in sexual sin, check this out, man. It incapacitates us to be able to give God the one thing that He desires more than anything else. Our love. And we, we've talked about this a lot already this morning. You know what? I can't, I can't comprehend it, y'all. But God wanted to have a relationship with a piece of trash like me. And He wanted to have a relationship with a piece of trash like you. And, and you know what? We couldn't have the love relationship with Him because of our sin. It separates us from who He is, and yet He loves us. So you know what God did? He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived on this planet, took our sin, and literally became sin for us so that we might be made in Him the righteousness of God. You know why? Not so He could cart us off to heaven when we croak so that we could have a love relationship with Him. And so you know what He did at our salvation? According to Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, you know what He did? Listen, He gave us a new heart. And according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23, what He did to our soul is He made it blameless. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, what He did is He gave us the mind of Christ in Psalm 40, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist said, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited. And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit and set my feet upon the, the rock. And who's the rock, 1 Corinthians 10? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you come along in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, and it says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their, their strength. Check it out. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a blameless soul. He gave you the mind of Christ. He renewed your strength. And you know what? Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He says, here, you, you want the bottom line on what, what this thing is really all about? Here it is. 
God wants you to love him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And listen, we've taken the time to do this. You just start cruising through the Word of God, and what you begin to see is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, no sin like sexual sin that will affect your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And listen, what God did in saving us so that we could have this love relationship with him. When we allow ourselves, whether it be thought or deed, to engage ourselves in some type of immoral behavior, you know what we've done? We've lost our ability to give God the one thing that he wanted above everything else. And I don't, you know what? I don't know what it's going to take to get some of our attention, but you know what? It does scare me that if that doesn't get your attention, to say, you know what? I, I gotta. I just gotta step back. I gotta get the brakes on and and just look at what's what's going on in my life. All right. And then last week we actually got back into the outline, Revelation chapter 14, talking about learning from this group of the 144,000 and this thing of the moral evidence of their relation to the Lamb and His Father. And, and we talked about the salvation of the 144,000 servants of our God. The salvation. And we saw that, that God expressed their salvation in two ways. At the end of verse 3 and at the end of verse 4, this is how he expressed their salvation. They were redeemed from the earth, and they were redeemed from among men. And we not only saw that our salvation as God's servants in the church age is also a redemption from the earth or from the world and from among men, we also saw how that from God's perspective, our redemption from those two things, from the world and from among men, really becomes a moral issue to him when we violate our salvation and when we find ourselves reconnected to the world that he redeemed us out of, when we find ourselves re-yoked to the people of this world that are in that, that whole system, what we began to see is to God. Now listen, that is a moral issue. James chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he begins the verse with, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that when you get yourself reconnected to the world system that you are redeemed out of, that it becomes spiritual adultery? And we went through, and we saw how through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God talks about yoking ourselves to the people in the world system, and he refers to it as those who have gone, listen to it, because it's a moral issue with him again, those who have gone a-whoring after them. And the point that I wanted to make sure that you could see right here on either side of this thing that they've not defiled themselves with women, he talks about their salvation as those two things. And it becomes for us a moral issue. He views our reconnection to the world system and our re-yoking to the world's people as spiritual fornication, as spiritual adultery. And now this morning, as we continue to talk about this moral evidence of the Lamb's 144,000, we're going to talk about what we can learn from the sanctification of the 144,000 servants of our God. That's letter C on the top of page 2 for those that are just joining us. 
the sanctification. Okay, first of all, we looked at the salvation of the 144,000. Now we're looking at the sanctification of the 144,000. And we see this again. Look at verse 4 again, where John says, These are they, referring to the 144,000, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Okay, now the big question here is, now does this mean that they remained undefiled physically? or that they remain undefiled spiritually? Does this mean they remain physical or literal virgins? Or does this, does this mean they remain spiritual virgins? And of course the answer to that is yes. You know what, I love y'all. You, you're quick, man. Maybe I just set you up too, too, too good. I, I don't know. Okay, but now before we actually get into talking about what this actually means, let's take just a couple of minutes to talk about what it doesn't mean and who it doesn't mean. And first and foremost, please understand that this verse in no way suggests that the marriage relationship is defiling. Now listen, what this is saying, it doesn't mean that every married man has defiled himself because he's had a physical relationship with his wife and because he can no longer be considered a virgin. And, and listen, there's been a lot of people that have misunderstood this verse. I know that almost seems like a no-brainer to us. I'm just telling you. A lot of people got messed up here, and, and I want you to see the way that God cross-references this thing. Go, go back to Hebrews chapter 13 for just a second. Hebrews chapter 13. And look at what God says in verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Now, I want to tell you, God chooses his words very carefully. He wants to make sure that you can go to his book and that you can make the right cross-references. And so what he does, because he, he knows that Revelation 14.4 is sitting over there, and he wanna, makes it very clear. He comes to Hebrews 13 and, four, and verse 4 and says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. And he wants to make very clear that the sexual relationship between a husband and wife within the marriage bond is a holy and sacred relationship. That relationship is in no way dishonoring and it is in no way defiling. A lot of you are looking at me and that's on your study sheet. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife within the marriage bond is holy and a sacred relationship. It is in no way dishonoring and it is in no way defiling. But Verse 4 goes on. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, you involve yourself in some kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage bond, and it's a whole different story, then it does become dishonoring. It becomes dishonoring to you. According to 1 Corinthians 6, it becomes dishonoring to your body. It becomes dishonoring to your partner. It becomes, above everyone else, dishonoring to to God, not to mention the defiling that it does to us, as we saw in the case of Lot, how it vexes the righteous, blameless soul that God gave to us so that we could love him with all of our heart, and soul, and mind, and strength. And again, that, that, that probably seems very obvious to you. You can go back to, to Revelation chapter 14. It probably seems so obvious to you 
but it does need to be said because I, it, there have always been people who in their zealousness for the Lord Jesus Christ and the desire to be everything that God wants them to be, they look at Revelation 14.4 and think, well, you know what? If, if remaining a virgin is, uh, or not remaining a virgin is in some way defiling, then you know what? I'll just not get, I'll just not get married. And, and that is not at all. God put that cross-reference so you never in a million years have to think that thought, and yet this is one of the key passages that the Roman Catholic Church used to teach that the priests were to stay unmarried. And if you go back and check it out in the Dark Ages, what you find is those priests thought they were the people being talked about in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4 because they had taken the vow of chastity. Let me assure you, this is in no way talking about a Roman Catholic priest in this verse. And, boy, I don't, we don't have time to go here, but I don't know if you saw the article in the Times Reporter about two months about what's going on in that whole world with the Roman Catholic priests. They are, right now, four times... Let me see how the wording of this would go. They are getting AIDS four times more than the average people in the population. And according to the article, it isn't because of blood transfusions... And to be quite honest with you, it's not even always because of their being defiled with women. It just it, it, Check it out, the Times Reporter, our own little paper. Okay, and, and just for the record, someone else that this isn't talking about is Jehovah's False Witnesses. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I don't know what you know about that whole system, but here are the Jehovah's False Witnesses, and they're all claiming to be the 144,000, all however many million there are of them now, they're all claiming to be this 144,000 and what's just absolutely mind-boggling in the light of verse 4 is that a lot of these people who think that the 144,000 are women which are excluded in the number according to verse 4 some of them are men who are married so they're no longer virgins which are excluded in the number according to verse 4 and some of them are unmarried men who have messed around with women in the past which are excluded according to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. But other than that, they're a great fit. <coughs> Listen, the 144,000, according to Revelation 14, 4, are obviously single men. 12,000 of them, as we saw from Revelation 7, 4, 12,000 of them from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are all, 144,000 of them, single men who have never defiled themselves with a woman. They have remained a virgin, which may be one of the greatest proof texts in the entire Bible, that the rapture is real soon. Have you ever thought about that? These people, 144,000, 12,000 of them from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that narrows it way down now. And then 12,000 of them from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that have not defiled themselves with a woman. And listen, in the promiscuous world that we live in, I'm just telling you, the rapture has got to be real soon. Because there ain't going to be 144,000 of them if he waits too much longer. In fact, I'm serious, man. It may be the number one criteria that God's going to use to figure out who this 144,000 are. Which are the ones that haven't defiled themselves with women yet? But that's, that's the first thing I want you to see about the, the sanctification of the 144,000. That is, they remain physically undefiled. They are literal Virgins, And like we talked about last week, these 144,000 are going to be like Paul. And you remember what Paul said when he gave his testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, 8? He said when he was giving his testimony, 
that I am one that is born out of due time. He had a premature birth, and we, 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 we went into great detail to talk about the fact that the miracle that God did with Paul on the road to Damascus is something that he's going to do 144,000 times over with this group of people that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 14. And you know what? They're going to be just like Paul. And they're going to remain unmarried for the work of Christ's sake. That is, they're going to remain literal, physical virgins. You remember what Paul said talking about remaining single in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7? When he comes along and he says to us, right into the church, he says, you know what? I wish that everybody was like me. And I wish that everybody would just not even, I mean, I wish they would be so consumed with the work of God that marriage wouldn't even be a consideration. But he comes along in the very next verse and he says, but not everybody has this gift. Okay? And you know what? You look back through the church age, look at the church age right now, and I, I, I'm just telling you, there are not many people in this dispensation who have that gift, that have the ability to remain, unsing or remain single for the work of Christ's sake, but I guarantee you in the tribulation period, there are going to be 144,000 of them who are going to have that same gift that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7. They will remain single for the, the, the mission's sake. They will not allow themselves to be defiled with women. And listen, the thing that becomes, when you understand what's really going on in the book of Revelation, if you've been here for this study, the thing that is so significant about the fact that they're not going to defile themselves with women is that under the Antichrist and, and the, the religion that the Antichrist is going to be propagating during the tribulation period, just like Satan has done and down through the centuries in the pagan religions, and I mean, you go to the Old Testament and see this over and over and over again. The religion of the Antichrist is going to have at its base an unbelievably vile immorality that is going to cater to every lust of the human heart. And in that day, listen, the sexual relationship is going to be regarded in the same way that the Canaanites regarded it back in the Old Testament as a consecrated act of worship. Listen, the crowning sin of the tribulation period is going to be fornication. You remember chapter 9 and verse 21? What, what it says is that even after the invasion of those demonic scorpion locusts that are going to invade the planet, you remember what it's talking about? And they're going to have that excruciating sting where they're going to sting the people of this planet and they're going to be, it's so excruciating that the pain lasts for five solid months. And what it says is after the torment of that sting, after the plagues that will be just tormenting this planet, and all of the things that will be going on on the earth, Revelation 9.21 says that they still won't repent of their murders, of their sorceries or drug addictions, their thefts, listen, and their fornications. And, and look right here in verse 8 of chapter 14. The angel pronounces judgment, and we'll see this next week, saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wrath of her, what? Her fornication. That, that's what the tribulation period is going to be characterized by. And in stark contrast to the people of the Antichrist stand the 144,000 who will not defile themselves with women, but will remain literal, physical virgins. But not only will they remain physically undefiled and remain literal virgins, they'll all, that'll also be true in the spiritual sense. They'll also remain spiritually undefiled and remain spiritual virgin. That's number two. They remain spiritually undefiled. Now, go over 
to chapter 17, if you will. Revelation 17. Okay, now keep in mind what we just saw there, okay? This group of 144,000 will not defile themselves with women, but will remain virgins, okay? And look what it says, chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked to me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, and the beast, of course, is the, hello, the Antichrist, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Frank talked about this earlier, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. What I want you to see here is that the religion of the Antichrist, as God sees it, is described as a woman, a woman who sits on or rides on the beast or the Antichrist. And this woman, in verse 5, he says, is the mother of all other kinds of immoral women. Okay? Now you got it? Go back to chapter 14 in verse 4. There is most definitely that sense involved when you read in verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Listen, spiritually, the 144,000 remain separated and sanctified from any kind of connection or relation or identification with any of the various forms of the mother of harlots, little whores. That's basically what it's saying. And, and you know what? Once you begin to see this, you know what? There's so much of the Bible that starts opening up to you. In fact, cruise back to Matthew 25 for a second. Let me show you this. Now, a lot of folks have lost their neck in Matthew chapter 25. And the reason is because they didn't make the right cross-references. Now, now, check this out. Matthew chapter 25. Now, and I don't have time to set all of this, but... We've got to make sure that when you come into this passage, you, you don't miss the Jewish context. This is the gospel written to the Jews, and all the way through it, it is, is just Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. And if you didn't know that coming into it, and you're a Bible believer, and you, you've, you've made yourself around the block once or twice, you'd surely pick up on it in verse 1 when he says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened, okay, and the kingdom of heaven is a phrase that is found in no other book of the Bible other than the book of Matthew, the gospel written to the Jews where a Jewish Messiah is promised to sit on a throne in Jerusalem ruling over the entire earth, a kingdom of heaven that is on the earth because the earth, of course, is the capital of the universe and you guys know all of that stuff. But go on in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, 
Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to marry him. Oh, no, excuse me. Go ye out to meet him. Key. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answer, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, you guys know there's been a lot of incredibly bad teaching that has come out of these, these verses. I mean, you, you turn the radio on or the TV on, there's always going to be some charismatic or Pentecostal preacher who's going to be, you know, talking about the fact that oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it is. And the way that they apply this thing is that, listen now, if you haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know what? You ain't got oil. And if you ain't got oil when the rapture takes place, you ain't going, baby. So listen, as that organ begins to pump and we start do, gyrating and doing all this stuff, y'all come on down here and get the Holy Ghost, you know? And that's the way this thing is, is, is propagated. But what you need to understand is this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you aren't one of the ten virgins who accompanies the bride. You are the bride. You're the bride of Christ. And did you notice as we were reading this passage, the virgins that he's talking about here, you know what, they're, they're, they're like bridesmaids in the wedding. Yeah, they're there, and they're part of the ceremony. You've seen it up here, you know, the bride and the groom. And here's all the ladies, they're working their way down here, holding little flowers and looking all cute and pretty and all that deal. And hey, they make the ceremony wonderful, but they ain't the bride. They go through the whole deal, and they don't get married. Hello? That's what Matthew 25 is talking about. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are what a, you're a part of what Revelation 21 and verse 2, Revelation 21 verse 9 calls the bride of Christ. Okay, now listen. There are those who accompany the bride. The virgins, okay, they represent the nation of Israel. And what Jesus is letting us know in this parable is that at the second coming of Christ, when, when once again God will have directed his attention to the nation of Israel, what God's saying is there's going to be two types of Jews in that day. Those who have oil, those who've wised up, and those who don't have oil, and those who are, they're fools. And, and check this out. Go back to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, this is just a, a beautiful prophecy of the marriage of the bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down, Psalm 45. Look down at verse 13. The king's daughter. You know who that is, y'all? That's us, okay? The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. Check this out now. The virgins, her companions, okay, the attendants, if you will, that follow her shall be brought unto thee. And that's the 144,000. Now the church is the bride of Christ and we're accompanied by virgins. They are our companions, our bridesmaids, if you will. And you see the same thing over, go, go to the right, just a few books there. 
to Song of Solomon. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Look at chapter 6. Okay, now I understand the doctrinal or the prophetic sense here. What you've got in the Song of Solomon is the son of David is talking to his Gentile bride here, okay? So what you've got is Jesus, is, is speak, Jesus, the son of David, is speaking here to his Gentile bride in verse 8, and he says, There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. Well, I thought there was only 144,000 of them. Well, remember what we saw last week? These are those that were redeemed from among men. These are the first fruits. They're the first fruits of the tribulation period. You know, you know what God does? God takes this group of people in the tribulation period and He uses them to reach a group of people according to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Listen, listen to it now. They reach a group of people which, this is John's words, which no man can number. Look at the verse. There are virgins without number, the tribulation saints. And watch what Jesus says in verse 9. My dove, my undefiled, that's the church, is but one. You know what? We're not like the virgins. They're all individual virgins, plural. We are one. We are one body. We are the bride of Christ. We're not the brides of Christ. We are one bride, the church. Look, go on. She is the only one of her mother. Galatians chapter 4, verse 26 says, The heavenly Jerusalem is the, the mother of us all. All of us who are saved, the bride of Christ, the mother of us all, is the heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 4, and verse 26. Look at the verse here. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. And again, the point is this. There's one bride. That's this dispensation. That's the church. And there are many virgins. It starts with the 144,000, and through their ministry, there are virgins without number. Is that clear as mud? So, okay... The 144,000 remain physically undefiled because of the, the consumption with their mission. They don't allow themselves to physically defile themselves with the fornications of their day, and they totally remain undefiled in the midst of all of the, the most horrendous stuff that you can imagine. And you know what? I don't, I don't know if, if how your brain works or if you're brain dead in here on Sunday morning or if you're connecting what you're seeing in our culture. Do you just see how sex is everywhere you look? It's everywhere you go. You know what's getting ready to happen, y'all? When we get out of here, all hell's going to bust loose in that whole arena. And you know what? We're watching it right before our very eyes. And that's what's got to do something inside of us to get a rod in our backbone to see the way that God views this thing. But they're going to remain physically undefiled, but not only that, they also remain spiritually undefiled, and they have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with anything that has to do with the religious woman that sits on the, on the beast, and spiritually, they keep their virginity. Now, 
What we've done with every single phrase for the last 33 weeks in this passage, and I'm almost embarrassed by it, but you know what? I believe God wanted us to spend 33 weeks going through this to learn all that we can learn from this group of people because they are absolutely incredible. But for the last 32 weeks, what we've been doing is I've been saying, okay, now this will be true of the 144,000. What we've done with every phrase, we've cross-referenced it throughout the New Testament to show how God wants that to be true of us as his servants in the church age. And listen, our sanctification, letter D, it ought to be defined, guys, listen, it ought to be defined with the same exact terms that's used to define the 144,000. First of all, number one, we are to remain physically undefiled. Did you hear that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are on a mandate from the God of the universe to keep yourself physically undefiled. And I, I wish somebody would say amen right there. Amen. I, I wish we had the time right now. Now listen, what, what I was talking about earlier is we have spent all kind of time over the last six or seven weeks or whatever it's been, We've been cross-referencing all over the Bible to just show all of the verses that God has to say about now that we've been a believer in Jesus Christ, the fact that we cannot allow ourselves in any way to be defiled physically. I wish we had the time this morning to just go through every single one of them. If you haven't been here, I would encourage you to get the tapes and, and get this thing down in your mind. Listen, the times are tough. And every, like we talked about, there's something sensual, there's something, something sexual everywhere you look, everywhere you go. It's a terrible time, but listen, as terrible as it is, it ain't nothing like it's getting ready to be in the tribulation period. And let me just quickly give you, we haven't done this yet, let me just quickly give you an overarching statement from God about sexual sin, about fornication. Let me show you how serious God is about this thing of fornication. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, in Acts chapter 15, in verse 25, God very clearly says, abstain from it. Abstain from fornication. Acts 21, 25 says, keep from it. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, avoid it. 1 Corinthians 10, 8 says, don't commit it. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 says, don't company with anyone who claims to be a believer and is a fornicator. Colossians chapter 3, in verse 5 says, mortify or kill it. Ephesians 5, 3 says, don't let it once be named among you. Not once. Don't even let it ever be named among you as becometh saints. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't go there is what he's saying. And if you want the best counsel from God about how to carry out all of those things that he just said, it doesn't get any easier than this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, God very simply says, flee from it. Flee. Listen, young people, singles, young marrieds, old marrieds, everybody in this room, listen, listen to God's admonition to you when it comes to this thing of fornication. Flee it. Now listen, look at me. You've got to understand something. This is one sin that God says you don't jive with it. Like we were talking about at the beginning. Sexual sin is a sin that is bent on waging war against your heart, against your soul, against your mind, and against your body or your, your strength. And God says, now listen, don't think, you're, don't think you're bad 
when it comes to this thing. Don't you stand there before this mortal enemy and try to argue with it. Don't stand before this enemy and try to fight with it. Don't get up in its face and tell it where to go and do all that. What he says is when this thing comes into your path, you run from it. You run to the Lord Jesus Christ. You flee to him as your strong tower. You run in there to find safety. And when you get in there, slam the door behind you. Don't leave it cracked. Not an inch. Don't even leave it, not even a stinking millimeter. You've got to get in there and hide yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Slam that door and then start barring that thing down with the word of God. That's the way that you deal with sexual sin. I'm telling you, you go through the word of God, buddy, and God does not mince for words when it comes to this thing. He is so serious about this. If you want a great example of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, it would be Joseph. Joseph, you know what? This dude's a stud, man. I mean, he is, he's a godly young man. He's mature. He's disciplined. He's dedicated, man, to Jehovah God. But you know what? He had the spiritual sense to realize when he was standing fornication in its face that he had no business being there. Fornication reaches out to grab him, and it grabs a hold and takes his coat. But you know what? My man Joseph left with his sanctification. And God says, listen, you flee that thing. You leave whatever you need to leave there, but you get yourself the heck out of there. You don't mess with this one. Amen. It's a serious stuff, man. And, and some of us, we need to let the Word of God arrest us. All of us need to let the Word of God arrest us on this thing. You don't mess with this one. You know why? Because it'll mess with your heart. It'll mess with your soul. It'll mess with your mind. It'll mess with your strength. Everything God gave you to love him with all that is within you. And that's what this thing, that's what, that's what this thing is all about. The, 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 the practical lesson that we need to learn from this is it doesn't matter, it, I mean, it, it, through the course of our life, I'm telling you, no matter how many times you read through the Bible, no how many, it doesn't matter how many hours a week you spend in prayer, it doesn't matter how many verses you've memorized, it doesn't matter how many people you've discipled, it doesn't matter how many missions trips you've been on, it doesn't matter how spiritually mature we think that we are, there's never going to be a come, a come a time when we are to do anything other than flee fornication. You don't allow yourself to stand around and smell its perfume and think you're going to be able to to push that thing aside. You don't get close enough to let it embrace you. You don't allow your mind to dwell on it. You don't watch it on the screen. You don't put yourself in situations where it can happen. If you find yourself in some kind of a situation where you start smelling that nasty perfume, perfume, man, what you do is you, you flee. I, I, you know what? How much clearer does God have to be? Let me ask you, how much clearer could he be than abstain from it, keep from it, avoid it, Flee from it. Don't commit it. Don't commit. Don't company with people to do. Mortify it. And don't ever, 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 ever let it once be named among you. I, I think there may just be something in the heart of God that says, you know what, I'd really like for you not to do this. And, and I'm telling you, you, you just see that God screams out the importance of our physical sanctification and never allowing anything anything to defile us. And I don't know if you fully recognize it or not, but God is just as strong. 
if not stronger. Are you checking this out? If not stronger, when it comes to our spiritual sanctification and our remaining spiritually undefiled, that's number two. We are to remain spiritually undefiled. Now, now you're going to probably need to look down as we go through this. This is coming quick, all right? Now, listen. One of the things that Satan has been bent on doing all down through the church age is what he has wanted to do is corrupt the relationship that we have as believers with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this last week. We don't have time to go there this morning. But listen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, how the Bible refers to our salvation. And it's so important that you get the pieces of this now. The way that the Bible refers to our salvation is that we have been espoused to Christ as our one, say it, our one husband. You see, that's why we were talking about just a few minutes ago, we are referred to as the bride of Christ. Revelation 21.2, Revelation 21.9. Okay, and you can... See, as we did this morning, and just beginning to cross-reference, the, the illustration is consistent throughout the whole Bible. We are espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ as our husband, but we await the consummation of the marriage. Okay, And that is going to happen when he comes to take us to his father's house at the rapture. Okay, So that's the plan. We've been espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't consummated the marriage yet. It's going to happen at the rapture. But here we are living down here in this world, going through this world, and so that we would never forget that that is true, so that we never stop awaiting our glorious wedding day and, and to show Satan and every principality and power and ruler of the darkness of the, this world until that time that we are Christ, that we are His, and that we have been spoken for. He comes along in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 and he says that he gave to us, listen to this now, he gave to us as it were the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit. The verses refer to him, listen to it, as the Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest or the down payment, the wedding ring, the engagement ring if you will, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession until the consummation of the marriage. Do you get it? We're espoused to him. He's our one husband. The marriage hasn't been consummated. He's going to come and take us to the house. But until that time comes, he's given us in our life the engagement ring, the spirit of promise, as that promise guaranteeing he's coming back and he's going to purchase us and he's going to take us to that place where that marriage is going to be consummated, the marriage supper of the, the Lamb. And listen... 2 Corinthians 11.2 says that when he comes for us at the rapture, he's coming, now listen, he's coming anticipating us being a chaste virgin, singular, not chaste virgins, a chaste virgin. But now listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, the very next verse, lets us know that Satan right now is exhausting every means that he has to corrupt us. Ephesians 5.27 says to blemish us. Colossians 2.4 says to beguile us. 
Colossians 2.8 says to spoil us. James 1.27 says to spot us. And you know how he's going to do that? You know how he's going to corrupt us, blemish us, beguile us, foil us, spot us? Revelation 2.14 says by committing spiritual fornication with us. You know why? 1 Corinthians 3.17 says he wants to defile us. You know what God's looking for with his bride? A chaste virgin who hasn't defiled themselves. And listen, just, just, just chill. You've got to understand, y'all. Satan will never, ever, ever give up trying to defile this church. Do you understand that? He's bent on it. That's why we talk so much about doctrine around here. Because you, you know where, what false doctrine is? Spiritual fornication. That's why we talk so much about the mother of harlots around here. That's why we talk about all of her little daughters, all the little whores. That's why we talk about false teachers around here. That's why we talk about false teachers by name. You know why? Because we understand what's going on. There's a warfare. We're the bride of Christ. And he says, I'm going to put this bride on display. I'm going to let every principality and power in the unseen world see my manifold wisdom. Watch this chaste virgin right here. And I'm just telling you, until he comes, we've got to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to be spiritually defiled and we've got to make sure we don't allow ourselves to be physically defiled. You know what? One of the saddest books in the Bible to me is the book of Hosea. I, I don't know what you know about the book of Hosea, but God, check this out. God tells Hosea that he wants him to marry a harlot. He wants him to marry a prostitute. What? What do you mean? The prophet of God marrying a prostitute? Yeah. And you know what he does? He marries this girl. And he falls in love with her. He would do anything in the world for this woman. Anything at all. He loves her with all of his heart. And every time he turns around, man, she's not just having an affair. She is prostituting herself with these men. Now listen, men, can you imagine your bride that you love with all of your heart, you do anything in the world for, and every time you turn around, that's what she's doing? Can you imagine what that'd do to your heart? Hello? I, I cannot imagine, man. I just cannot fathom it. You know why God did that? Because he said, Hosea, here's the deal. I've taken Israel as my wife. And this is what they're doing. Every time I turn around, they're sleeping with the world system. They're joining themselves to the people of the lands that I told them not to join themselves. They're defiling themselves. They're prostituting themselves. And Hosea, 
I want to get a message to them. And the only way that I know how to get that message to them is for you to have my heart. And the only way that I know for you to have my heart is for you to feel what I feel. So listen, Hosea, would you go out and would you preach the message now that you understand how I feel? We're the bride, y'all. And he fully expects that until he comes to take us to his father's house, that we're going to remain chaste. That means physically. That means spiritually. Now, I, I almost hate getting off of this because this is such a prevalent sin in our society. We, we've covered all kind of ground, all kind of territory, coming to the, try to teach this passage. And listen, if nothing else has arrested your attention, maybe the little story of Hosea will breaks the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for him to see us prostituting ourselves with the world system and with the people of the world and with the mother of harlots and all the false systems of religion that are out there. You know what? Grieves his heart. And may our desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all, all of our all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. May that keep us pure until that trumpet sounds and pulls us off this globe. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, check this out. The God of the universe wants to have a love relationship with you. You say, man, I am so full of sin. You know what? That's why Jesus came. God came to the planet because we're all sinners and could do nothing, absolutely nothing to get to him. So God came down and said, I'll take your sin upon me. And all, all I ask is that you don't come with all of the baggage of religion and all of your good works and your baptism and anything else. I want you to just come to me and say, I understand that you're God and you're Lord and that there is absolutely nothing that I can do to come to you. So you did everything that was necessary through what you did on the cross, and I trust that. And that alone is my only means to you, and I want you to come and sit on the throne of my life and be my Lord. And listen, when you just do that, the miracle of salvation will come to you. He'll move inside of you. He'll take your sin and remove it from you. And you know what? You become a part of his bride. And in just a little while, he's coming for us. You know why? Not so we can sit on clouds and play the harp and wear golden slippers and float. He's doing that because he loves us and wants to have an eternal love relationship with us. And if that's something you have interest in, if you've got questions about it, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed today. It's our invitation to you to come. Nobody's going to coerce you. Nobody's going to force you into anything. But we would love to share with you how you could leave here today knowing your sin is removed and you have...
the relationship that God intended for all of us to have from the beginning, but sin interrupted. And we invite you to come today and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. And right where you're seated this morning, why don't you just spend a few moments with the Lord Jesus Christ and talk to Him about the things that He's talking to you about this morning. Christians, use this as a time to nail this thing. I'm telling you, next week, we're off it. And I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm really concerned. If we don't nail this thing here, the vexing process may well destroy the rest of our life. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you. It's the testimony of Scripture. It's the testimony of society. And much to our shame, it's the testimony of people who at one time numbered with us. But now listen, some of you are here this morning. And, and oh, hey, listen, I know that if, if, you're, if you're here today and you're new to this whole thing, 144,000, the rapture, and all this stuff is, I know that's some heavy, heavy stuff. But now listen, in the midst of all of that, did you see the heart of God for you today? And that God wants to have a love relationship with you. If God's speaking to you today, well, I, I, I urge you. You know what? We all sat where you sat. We all had that thing going on inside of us that's going on in some of, inside some of you right now, that, that heart that's just racing and, and almost a, a feeling like, I, I, I can't wait till this is over so this can, this can stop. And, and do you understand that what God's trying to do is draw you to himself today? So listen, rather than resisting. And again, nobody's going to coerce you into anything, but why not talk to somebody if God's speaking to you today? We invite you to talk to one of our pastors as our service is concluded. Now, Lord, would you please speak to the hearts of people here today that don't know you? And would you please help me as one of the pastors of this church, one of the leaders that you've placed here to be an example of the moral evidence that ought to be in the life of one who has a relationship with you. And help all of us that comprise this local body of believers, this local bride of Christ in this place. Oh God, would you please help us to be the chaste virgin that you long to have. Keep us physically pure. Keep us spiritually pure in this church so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.